Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive. My guest today is Terry Tucker. Hi Terry. How are you? Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. It's, it's wonderful to have you. Um, what's an idea that's been helping you live well? I think the biggest idea that's helping me live well and has helped me live well most of my life is what I like to call my three F's, which stands for faith, family, and friends. Uh, I think all three of those in combination absolutely positively help me get through, especially now since I'm fighting cancer, really help me get through every day. Yeah, sounds simple, but I bet there's a lot behind it. So I'd like to kind of pick your brain and, and get at the origins of that. So in terms of conceiving of it in this, in this fashion and, um, you know, trying to see how you come with these three F's and not other letters or anything like that. Where would you like to take us? Um, how far back would you like to take us to a point where this is kind of an understanding that's beginning to gel in your mind? I, I think it really goes back to my parents. Um, you know, my, my story is not one where my dad was an alcoholic and he beat my mother. And I mean, it was, it was just the opposite. I, I mean, we, we had a caring family and I, We were talking before we jumped on here. I have two brothers, and we were all athletes. You, you can't tell this from looking at me, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and actually wow. played basketball in college. I've got another brother who's six seven, another brother who's six six, and then my dad was six five. And so my parents used to do what I called uh, divide and conquer parenting, where you know I would have a game. on this day at this time and dad would go to that and my brother would have a practice at the same time and my mom would go to that. So my parents taught us the value of caring for each other, of loving each other, of supporting each other. And, and that's what a family was all about. So it, it was really, I think it started with my parents. It started with them. You know, they weren't helicopter parents where they were always there, you know, where we couldn't make a mistake. We certainly made our share of mistakes growing up. But they were always they were always there with with love and support and discipline and things like that. And I really think that's kind of kind of where it started. And, and they taught us about faith. They taught us about family. They taught us about having good friends and things like that. So I really think it goes all the way back to, you know, almost my birth and, and the, the love and the respect and the caring that my, my parents showed us all. That's amazing. And that's probably the best way to really know things is to just grow into a family that models the thing rather than, you know, ideas being given to you in verbal form and not actually being modeled at the same time. That can be definitely confusing. So I'm really happy for you. Um, for having gone through that, uh, what about the, the faith aspect of it? Was it always present at home? When you say faith, do you mean a certain religious denomination that's, that's common to everyone or something that has kind of your personal flavor? I mean, I was raised a, a Catholic and, and to this day am a Catholic. And, you know, I, I sort of joke, I told you, you know, I'm six, eight, I got a brother, six, seven, a brother, six, six, and my dad was six, five. So I sort of joked that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayers chance you were going to see anything, you know, that was going on <laughs> because we were blocking everybody that was going on. But our, our five foot eight inch mother was always the boss. And mom always wanted to sit in the front row at church. And we were always like, mom, no, nobody's going to like us here in this parish, you know, because they can't see anything. We got to sit in the back. No, we need to sit in the front. So it was, it was always kind of a push and pull with my mom in terms of, Of where we sat at church but my mom had a very strong faith and would literally be up you know she would she would wash all our practice gear or our uniforms you know after whatever sport we were playing and and would she would be up all night doing that and then you would find her you know like on the couch with her rosary you know saying the rosary we used to call it bobbing and weaving because you know she would be like Uh, kind of giving us one of those things and, and saying her prayers as she was falling asleep. And I remember when I was, <clears throat> I wasn't 15 yet. I think I was 14 years old. I had my first knee surgery. And this was, and again, I'm really going to date myself now, but this was long before arthroscopic surgery was available. So mm -hmm. I had 
the large zipper scar on, on the outside of my right knee. And at the time, you know, you had surgery, you stay, I was in the hospital for like four days and I had a cartilage removed. You know, I tore a cartilage. It was, it was I mean, today you'd be in and out, you know, in a couple hours mm. and it'd be over. But I was in the hospital and I got an infection in my incision and I was in a lot of pain. So they were giving me pain medication. And I remember I woke up about two o'clock in the morning and I was having hallucinations. I was seeing, you know, things that obviously were not there. And I was scared. I was a kid. I was 14 years old. And I remember, you know, picking up the phone and calling home at two o'clock in the morning, you know, and my mom answered the phone. Obviously, I woke her up and and she was like, I was telling her what was going on. And I was crying and I was I was scared. And she was like, open the nightstand drawer. I put a rosary in there. Take the rosary out and start saying it. And I did. And it, it made me feel better. It calmed me down. You know, I mean, she obviously couldn't be there with me and there was no, you know, any kind of computers or anything like that where we could, we could Skype or Zoom or anything like that. So that was really, you know, that was my mom saying, you know, this is bigger than us. This is bigger than humans, that it, it's, it's a faith that you have to believe in something that's bigger than yourself. And I think that mm. what team sports taught me, you know, and, and I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and played all the way up till I was 21 when I graduated from college. What team sports taught me is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, etc. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. So, mm. you know, it, it was real. I, I think my mom, as you said, you know, they didn't just give it lip service. They modeled it. You know, they, they it was, you know, don't just do what we say. Watch what we do. And, and I think that was another huge thing that my parents taught me. I, I'm real cautious today about looking at what people say and does that match how they live their lives? How, does it mm. match what they do? Because a lot of people give you lip service and then turn around and do something entirely different. So. I guess that's a long answer to the question that you asked. <laughs> so. No, I, I like it, and I especially like that you naturally went into a um, into a story that really where this was required and the turning to. And you know, personally, I grew up in a in a very secular home, and although all of my grandparents grew up in religious home in uh, either Eastern Europe or. Uh, Eastern Europe houses in Detroit, <laughs> in the case of half of my family. Um, but they all grew up religious and then gave up the religion. But the interesting thing is that um, they did so pretty much in favor of um, communism. And and communism, it's like, it, it's an interesting thing. So I'm not going to endorse it. It, it. it was a very weird time. I grew up in a in a community called the Kibbutz, and it's basically a communist village where people shared everything and all that. But, but communism is, it, it is a religion. And as you know, it's like different religions tend to get certain sects can go into realms of putting too much emphasis on the differences between people and go their crazy way like communism did. Uh, but over there, it's interesting that the aspect of actually being something, uh, being a part of something bigger than yourself is, is very, very central. It's even extreme, I, I would say, because it's almost, you know, you need to coalesce into some bigger organism and forget about yourself, which people didn't do too well. Um, but I, I definitely agree. And with religion, even though I grew up very secular and to this day, I don't, I don't observe, um, even Jewish holidays here too much. We have our, we have our traditions and things like that, that I do, but I, I don't have the deep spiritual connection with, uh, a certain religion. I think that uh, religion at large, and now it doesn't matter what kind of of, um, of sect you're part of, it does have the thing about uh, being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. And you mentioned prayer, and that's very interesting because I've been hearing from more and more people that prayer is, as time goes by, is actually 
proving to be more and more kind of very efficient in actually uh, being a part of even a secular lifestyle because it is almost like a type of meditation. And I don't know, I'm interested in hearing from you do you do you have that experience like how would you describe the experience of having something to to turn to how and what do you think the mechanism is if you can call it that of then things actually kind of materializing or presenting themselves in in your life like how do you think that works for you that, that's a great question <clears throat> I have um, I pray every day uh, and I, I, I would lie, I'd be lying to you if I told you I didn't pray for myself. I do. I, I do pray that, you know, these tumors in my lungs and things like that are, are taken away. But I've also, since I've been on an almost 11-year journey with cancer, I pray for the number of people that I have met, wh- whether they are still with us or whether they, they have passed on. And so it, it is an, it's important for me every day to do that. It, it grounds me. It, it centers me. And, and I remember... Uh, back in 2020, I had my leg amputated because of, of my cancer, and I found out I had these tumors in my lungs. And, and about eight or nine months later, my doctor showed me my my CAT scans. And, and I, I have no medical background. I, I don't really know how to read a CAT scan, but I kind of know what, well, that looks like it should be there, and, well, that doesn't look like it should be there yeah. at all. And and so I, I, I you know, I, I looked at my doctor and, you know, I had, I had these big tumors in my lungs. I had fluid all around the pleural spaces on, on the outer part of my lungs. And I looked at my doctor and I was like, how was I alive? And he kind of got a smile on his face and sort of shook his head and said, I, I don't know, because you shouldn't wow. have been. You know, there, there's no way with the size of those tumors and with what you were going through that you should be alive. But, but I am. And, and, and what that says to me is that, God, whatever you believe that to be, is not done with me. And I, I, and I think that the way I look at it, and especially as I get older, the way I look at it is we seem to, you know, whatever, you, you know, you, you finish high school, you finish college, you know, you go in the military, whatever you, to, whenever you start to get into the world where, you know, okay, now you got a job and, you know, maybe you, you have a spouse and children and, and mm. you're, you're getting into the world. And we tend to look at ourselves, I think, as if we are born empty and our job is to fill ourselves up. You know, we got to get a great job. We got to make a lot of money. So we mm. fill ourselves up with that. We got to have a nice car. We got to live in a nice house. We, we just, we consume, we fill ourselves up. And the older I get, the more I think that it's just the opposite, that we are not born empty and our job is to fill ourselves up. But we are born full, and our job is to empty ourselves out for the betterment mm. of ourselves, for our family, for our friends, for our community, for our world. And it, it, it's a—I've been thinking about that a lot, and and it's really what I feel. You know, if we did more of that, where you know it wasn't all about me. You know, what can I get? You know, how can I consume? And I. And I say this because I, I'm old enough now that I've seen people that have had it all. They they have the huge house, they have the money, they have all this stuff, but they don't have love, you know, which I think is the most important thing that mm. we can all have. And, and I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, love for ourselves, loves for, love for our creator, love for our fellow man. That's, that's the kind of love that I'm talking about, love for what we do, our purpose in that. And... And I've seen people who who you and I would probably say, well, that that, guy, that person has it all. You know, they they got everything. That that's what I want, and they're miserable. You know, they're 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 yeah. they're divorced. You know, their their kids don't like them, or the only time the kids come around is when they want money, and you know, they don't have good friends and good relationships. And I'm like, if that's what having it all means, I, I don't want to have it all. I want to be the person that is full that spends the rest of my life emptying myself out in the hopes of making life better for other people. I, does, I yeah, mean, does that, uh, any of that resonate with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the two aspects of looking at a thing, you could look at a thing as, you know, we, we're already 
uh, talked about being a part of something bigger, and that is one way of looking at things, viewing, uh, viewing something and how it relates to other things. Or the other way to look at something is to see it as a whole and then kind of examine the parts. And I think that uh, the modern way, or at least the Western way, of, of doing this is, you know, considering the individual to be that kind of whole, as you say, and that whole, uh, our job is to kind of arrange everything around us so it's in, it's in the service of, you know, hopefully, like you say, filling, filling something to the brim, you know, and that really doesn't take into account, uh, First of all, the fleeting nature of whatever it is we're looking at as, as individuals, it's, it's fleeting, right? Um, and so we miss on an opportunity to see ourselves as being fitting. And I guess, I guess that's my F that I can contribute to the conversation of fittingness, of really being part of, of something bigger and also doing your best to um, contribute to the wellness of other people and these things reverberate in a way that I think makes them less ephemeral too and less fleeting because this comes back and fills you in a very, very, very different way. So I think with my family, my wife and, and kid, um, it seems like I can on the surface have the, the most kind of mundane experience during a day and maybe it's, you know, quote unquote, just us taking a walk in the sun, like nothing major, right? No roller coasters, no trip abroad, nothing like that. And at the end of the day, I feel like a little drop has fallen into a big reservoir. Um, and, and it's little, but it's a different type of reservoir that doesn't actually leak. And I, I do feel the effects of doing that uh, week in and week out and week out that it, it fills the thing in a, in a very different way than the more um, carnal pleasures or visceral pleasures that, that we were used to, to sick in this uh, modern day. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, like, Growing up, what was the uh, first of all? Where where was it in the U.S. that you grew up? I grew up in Chicago. Chicago. Okay, so I don't know if this this has anything to do with geography, but do you feel like uh, the the general tendency of what we pay attention to as a society has shifted throughout this time? I, I do. Uh, you know, Chicago was a a fairly Catholic city, you know, when I grew up, um, you know, a lot of Irish Catholics, a lot of the, 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 the interesting thing that I loved about Chicago was that there were, there were neighborhoods, you know, that th this is, this is a Lithuanian neighborhood. This is a Polish neighborhood. Mm. This is a German neighborhood. This is an Irish neighborhood. And, and it was, and people took pride. They took pride in their neighborhoods. They took, they took pride mm. in their homes. They took pride you know, in their churches and their businesses and things like that. And it, it was, it was again, going back to what we've been talking about for the collective, for the, you know, for the good of the neighborhood and, and things like that. And, and I loved it because, you know, it, you know, on one side of the block, it could be a Polish neighborhood. And on the other side, it could be an Irish neighborhood, but they all work together to make the neighborhood a good place to live, a good place for children to grow up, a good good schools, you know, good religion, good businesses, good food, good everything was was for the for the good of the community. And I think today it's more about the individual. It's more about my rights and my privileges, not so much about my you know my responsibilities and my obligations, which is really. I think sad in a way because you're you're not, you know, back then you were part of that community and you felt good about it and there was some there was reassurance there to know that you you belonged somewhere that this mm -hmm. was this was home and and you know that that was even when I say that word you know this was home that was a it makes me feel good you know and today there's no there there's not no there there are places but it just seems to be 
that it's all about me. And, and if I don't benefit from it, well, then I don't want to be part of it. And, and that, to me, seems kind of sad and seems kind of, I don't know, you, you know, alone and things like that. And, and we're, we're, we're people. We're designed to be with each other. We're not, we're not designed to live separate. We, we function better when we're together. So, again, another long answer to a, a simple question. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I don't mean to, like, put the onus on you on, like, becoming a, a political commentator. No, but I at understand. Least, but, but at least, but at least in, in, in your experience, um, do you – at least in, in your life, do you have a point where you kind of notice these things that are – because I think the very clearly the theme of your three Fs has to do with, with everything we just mentioned. It's basically connectivity, right, and, and fittingness, as I mentioned. These three things are, are all about understanding that um, there is something bigger than yourself and something to the sides of yourselves and that – that uh, creates a kind of web that doesn't let you fall into an abyss, right? Um, yeah, what, what would be a kind of trend, like the trend we just mentioned? Do you have any recollection of how, how, how things kind of shifted throughout your lifetime around this? Yeah, I... You know, when, when I was growing up, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of goes back to the it takes a village concept, you know, where, where mm. everybody's involved with raising children. And, you know, when I was growing up, most of the dads went to work and the moms stayed home and raised the family, took care of the house and did the shopping and things like that. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that's that's the way I was raised. And so you, you knew that, you know, if you did something wrong with your buddies you know, and Mrs. Savage saw, saw you do it, Mrs. Savage would kick your butt and then send you home and call your mother so that when you got home, your mother would kick your butt at the same <laughs> time. You know, so there was, there really was, it takes a village. And I think, you know, and, and I think it's absolutely good that women are in the workforce and things like that now. But when we we got away from the, you know, there were people all around. You know, and now it's latchkey kids where, you know, kids come home to an empty house and there's no supervision and, and there's, there's, there's access. Kids need discipline. Kids need boundaries. Kids need to understand what the rules are. And when you allow children, through no fault of their own, you know, to come home and say, basically, you can do whatever you want until mom and dad get home from work, I really think that's kind of when things changed. And I also think... Mm. And I'm and I'm gonna I, the 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 churches were always the churches the synagogues what you know the whatever it was those were places of honor those were places of respect those were places of love and and you could go there and you could get counsel you could get you know a, a, an ear to listen to and you know whether it's the you know, the the church scandal with the priests, you know, the Catholic churches around the world and, and the issues with the priests that, that we've seen and things like that, those aren't necessarily what they were when I was growing up. You know, the, the, right. there, there, there still is, you know, the, the good priests, the, the good rabbis, the, the good imams and all that kind of stuff, they still exist. They're, they're there. And But it, it's just, you know, I think those two things in my lifetime – are really where I saw kind of the shift from the way things were to the way things are now. Interesting. Yeah, I think that um, the whole, wherever there is a kind of hierarchical structure to to um, a spiritual practice, you're going to have bad apples and bad actors yes. in it, right? And this is definitely not restricted to Catholicism. I mean, right now there are at least two or three documentaries on Netflix of, um, you know, people coming from the yoga world and stuff like that. Or we know about Osho in Portland and all that, or Oregon. So that's, that's kind of universal and of course a, a big shame. Um, but yeah, I, I can really sympathize with that. I think that, um, 
this is something that's that's on the decline. And since I'm playing volleyball every week and not basketball, I'm going to say that you set me up nicely for a spike or throw me a ball for an alley-oop. I guess it doesn't matter. But talking about children and how it takes a, how it takes a village, because I just uh, sat with two friends of mine from here, childhood friends. And by the way, during my childhood, even though this was um, a place coming from... Uh, the spirit, in the spirit of communism and all that, here the rule was that on Friday night, all the people of the of the little kibbutz would eat together at a central place. So that was um, like a church, and of course they would celebrate holidays in a very secular way, but in a very together way. Um, so I was sitting with these two friends, and they announced to me, one of them, that he was having his third child, um, that his wife is pregnant, and the other that he was having his second. And I, I'm happy for them. Like, I congratulated them. And uh, as I told you, I have one child. And I told them, it's like, wow, I can't, I honestly, I can't see myself having another kid right now, right? So we, we talked about it and about all the things. And they know what I think about raising children because I homeschooled uh, my daughter. So they know what I think about it. And it was only after the fact, when we concluded this talk, that I kind of went home, talked about it with my wife, and we, we luckily are pretty, pretty un under, we understand each other on this matter. And then I realized, wow, it's like we, me and them, people who send their child um, to childcare very early on, you know, as, as early as like six months, it's we have a very different conception of what it means to have kids. To have a child is not to give birth to it. Right? It doesn't end there. This is just the beginning, in fact. And for me, the notion is that I'm not able to give my daughter any less in terms of um, support around her and being part of a community. And I'm sad to say that in our case, it's restricted to to us being the adults around her and uh, a little bit uncles and aunts but not too much and a little bit grandparents but not as much as i would like because we live in this western society in israel um and for me so i think one way of raising your kids is sending them to all these to all these places as soon as six months old and then you're kind of free and you have your freedom to the point where like, okay, why not have another one? It's not going to matter much. It's They are not with their children for nine hours plus every day, right? And then for me, it's very different. It's like, wow, I know what it takes to raise a child up to the standard um, that I hold, right? So these are two ways of raising children. And then there's the third, which I wish was available to me of actually having a village, right? And in the absence of that option, I think the choice is for me not to, um, not to do that again. But it was very interesting to see how different our conceptions of what it means to have a child and what it means to provide for them. Um, so I've also just today lamented about the fact that, you know, these support systems and, and communities um, are in fact kind of, um, yeah, dying. Dying is a depressing word, but, um, you know, di dissolving or, or disintegrating. Yeah. I, I would agree with you. I, I, I call those people that you are describing box checkers. Because it's like, you know, I, I got out of, I went to college, I checked the box. You know, I got married, I checked the box. I had a kid, I checked the box. You know, mm. and, and you're right. It, it's, it, it, you know, people have to work, and, and I get that. And sometimes, you know, both people in a relationship have to work in order to make ends meet and things like that. I, I absolutely get that. But that doesn't mean you can't be involved in your kid's life. And, and I've seen so many... Because people have come up to us. I, we have a daughter you and I were talking about. Our daughter's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer um, in, in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. And the Air Force Academy is an incredibly uh, intensive institution. And, you know, from the academics to the military to, you know, the, the, the athletics and things like that. 
And people always like, you know, oh, congratulations. I'm like, well, I, I, she did all the heavy lifting. And I mean, we just were there to kind of support her. But people ask us, you know, well, you, because you had a daughter that, that did that, do you have any advice? And, and the one piece of advice, I'm, I'm really careful to give people advice because obviously they're, you have to raise your child the way you and your spouse see fit. But I always tell them, I'm like, remember this. You are the parent. You're not their friend. And, and that's, I think so many people want to, you know, they, as you say, you know, they're at work nine hours a day. And so they feel guilty. And so because they feel guilty, they want to give their kids stuff. You know, they want to do all these things with their kid. But the one thing I think your kid needs is, is you, you know, to spend time with them mm. and to spend quality time. I, I remember when I was a police officer, I worked nights and I would, uh, put our, it was my job to put our daughter to bed at night. And, and I can't tell you the, you know, the number of nights where I would lay down with her or we would read a book or we would just talk about the day. And, you know, in her small, you know, six-year-old, seven-year-old mind, and, and, and you're trying to bring things down to that level. But I never left for work without getting a hug, a kiss, and a careful daddy. I never, never left for work. Even if she was traveling with her mom, you know, they went to see relatives. It would always be on the phone before work. You know, give me a hug, a kiss, and a careful daddy before I go to work. It, it was it was that bond. And, and mm. it wasn't a lot of time. You know, it was probably maybe half hour, 45 minutes. But to this day, she'll tell you how special that that bond was. So remember, you're not, you're the parent, you're not the friend, you got to make the tough calls. You've, you're the one who's got to say no, you're not going to that party, because I know the parents aren't going to be home, and there's going to be alcohol and drugs, you're not going, you know, and then they go stomping up the stairs, and they slam the door, and they tell you they hate you. And then you look at them and say, I know you do, but I'm making this decision because I love you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I noticed something interesting when taking my daughter to uh, preschool. Now she's in preschool and still we don't keep her there for the full day because it's unimaginable to us. Um, but we take her in the morning, uh, partly also because we don't have the, the option of actually hanging out with a lot of other kids during the day. But I noticed something interesting. Like if you go to preschool, it's not an uncommon sight to see a child really crying and throwing a fit because their parent is going to, to work. And with my daughter, I noticed very early that it wasn't so much about her not wanting to say goodbye to me at all, because actually at that age, like it does good for her to spend time with other adults and children. But she didn't want to get the feeling that I was leaving a minute too early without uh, a good reason, just because I want, you know, so it's, it's very interesting. And once I realized that and realized I should make the time to make sure and come in earlier if I, if I have to, so, should, so that she gets this fill and, um, and knows that I haven't actually prioritized something other than being with her, you know, something that she doesn't understand. And if it's a day that I absolutely have to go to work, I do that. Now it's, um, it's, it's a very good point you raise about, you know, people having to work. So it's not about judging people. It's not about saying, I told you so, or anything like that. But one thing I'd like people to kind of think about more is how easily and readily we accept, um, the, what we call the reality around us and just play along with it. And I think that what happened in those years and decades where this kind of um, erosion of, of society has been happening, a, a lot of it is, is selling people ideas about what self-realization means, and we kind of discussed that. And a, a lot is about creating a system that seems... Um, unresponsive to any attempts on your part to change it, right? And it's the capitalist system that does drive two parents to work full time so that they have that. And I think it's easy to be born into a system like that and hear from your parents, that's how things are. That's how things are, you know? So that's how things are. 
for a lot of people that I see, that's how things are. Uh, but in fact, it's important to remember that if enough of us did think that we could do things differently, we can and, and should change the, the, the system we live in, in, in ways we see fit for um, actually living uh, a better lifestyle. So I'm trying to make this more into an, an empowering idea rather than kind of sitting here and, and bashing them um, verbally or anything like that. That's not the focus. I would agree with you. I, 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 and I don't mean it to be, I don't, I, I, I never judge anybody because I, you know, I am not perfect. I've made a tremendous amount of mistakes. I, I, I want to tell you a quick story that kind of goes about the story you were telling about your daughter and dropping her off at daycare. I remember our daughter's first day of school. It, we were in car line. I was dropping her off and, you know, the teachers open the door and, you know, they greet the kids and it's, it's very, wholesome and things like that. And, and, and our daughter's in the back and, and I'm, you know, creeping my way up to the teacher and all these kids, like you say, they're, they're having to be pulled from the car and they're screaming and they're throwing, you know, their arms are waving and they're crying. And, and I, and it's my turn and I get up there and the teacher opens the door. Our daughter leans forward. She kisses me on the cheek. She says, I love you, daddy. I'll see you tonight and gets out of the car. And I was a policeman at the time, and I had to go to court that morning. I, I, and I cried all the way to court. Hmm. I'm like, wait a minute. All these kids are, you know, throwing a tantrum because they're being ripped from their parents. Our daughter's like, you know, she kisses me on the cheek and she's gone. And I, <laughs> and I was in court with my partner, and I was telling her the story. And she's like, Terry, no, 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 you don't understand. She's like, your daughter is secure enough in the relationship she has with you and your hmm. wife she loves you enough. She knows that you're going to be there for it because you've always been. She was secure enough just to give you a kiss and know that, no, it's not. I don't have to yell and scream and do what everybody else did. I am. You have a good relationship with her. And I never thought about that. I never thought about, oh, she didn't do that because we have a good relationship. I was upset because she didn't yell and scream and, you know, be pulled from the car at the time. And, and you're right. I mean, you have a you have a choice. You have a, I mean, we have a neighbor down the street who they have five children. They have homeschooled all of their children. And, and they made a choice. They made a choice to say, okay, the, the mom is a physical therapist by trade, but she made a choice with her husband to say, you know what? I'm going to educate. I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to be a physical therapist during this period. Their, their last child is about ready to, to go to college. So she's back into the physical therapy job, you know, doing what she enjoyed. But you're right. Life is all about choices. It's about the choices that we make, good choices, bad choices. And then understanding that you need to live with the consequences of the choices that you make. Yeah, maybe you don't live in the nicest house because your wife or your husband decided to stay home and, and homeschool your children or, or whatever. It's a choice. It's a trade-off. And I think at the end of our lives, the things that, you know, nobody ever says, and, and, and this is a cliche now, but nobody ever says, gee, on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Right. It's always, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids or my spouse or my parents or whatever. So I, I think at the end of the day, sort of looking at the end game, you know, when it's your time to go, are you going to be happy with the choices you made? And are you able to live with the consequences of those choices? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it's not going to be the, the, the first time that I mention uh, Bronnie wears uh, five regrets of the dying. Anybody listening should check that out. But yeah, absolutely, it just corroborates perfectly what you're saying. People basically are saying, I wish I let myself uh, feel more. I wish I let myself spend more time with family. And I wish I didn't work so much, basically. Um, yeah, if we, if we were to move forward and rebuild these things, um, what are some steps that you feel like could be could be taken in small ways, like ways to organize? Because from a personal point of view, I, I have to say that I see a trend of, of the churches disappearing, and we know that. We know the data about it. 
And, but I, I generally, I understand the trend, me as a secular person, I understand the trend of kind of walking away from that, but I get the sense for me that this is, and for me as well, that this is like, you know, throwing the water with the baby out of the bathtub. And what are some ways that we could take to, to kind of bring back some of these things without, n not just by being super conservative and listeners, like the, we already experienced the golden age and we need to get back to it because I'm mindful of the fact that I want to respect people and their choices. And they obviously see a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that was wrong in the old times. And there was, and there always is going to be because there's always progress. But how do we put a dent in that worldview that kind of makes sacred the, the visceral pleasures or the, um, um, yeah, basically the whole notion that you described of trying to fill something up and not losing and really engaging in this rather uh, selfish and, and greedy kind of MO in life? That's that's a great question, and I I think if I if I had a really good answer, I would have written a book, and I'd be you know a millionaire <laughs> living on you know an island in Jamaica somewhere uh, right now. I I, I don't know. I, I I I'll offer this. Um, you know, we're always we're, we seem to be a goal driven society. You know, we we have you know we make new year's resolutions we make you know goals for our company we make goals for ourselves for our family we, we're goal 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 oriented and i don't think there's anything wrong with that but where i think we need to step back and take a look at is that if your goals aren't tied to your values and, I'll, 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 and that's where I think people fall down. I think that's why so many New Year's resolutions fall down by the end of, you know, the end of January and why so many people don't realize their goals because they don't know what their values are. You know, what, what, are you, mm -hmm. what are you willing to die for? What are you willing to commit your life to with the understanding that you may never get to the top of the mountain. You may never get the brass ring. You may, you, you may never succeed at that, but it's so ingrained in you that um, it's something you should do. I, I mean, mm. Viktor Frankl, you know, in, in his books, he talks about how we all have, we're all put here for a purpose. And we, you know, we can't just be, uh, whatever, you know, if I find my purpose, that's great. If I don't, we don't. I mean, his commitment is you've got to find your purpose in life. You've got to find that purpose. You've got to use your unique gifts and talents, and you've got to live that purpose. That's, that's the reason you're here. And I think so many people, they, they set goals, but they don't, they don't know what their values are. They don't know that, you know, I want to be a person of good character. I want to be humble. You know, I want to mm. tell the truth. I want to, you know, when I'm talking to you, I want to look you in the eye and, and we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to work this out together, but we're going to do it in a truthful manner. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to, you know, and, and I think if we, if we took a step back and tried to understand what our values in life were, it might, and, and again, I think it's a huge might, it might be a step towards getting to the point where, you know, we've been talking about how do we get back to the point where things have value in our lives? They're not just disposable. You know, we get this and we throw it out. Okay, we'll move on to the next thing. What, what matters to you? What, what's in your heart? What's in your soul? And I always tell, especially young people, when I talk to them, if there is something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then, it's going to be too late to go back and do those things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like this uh, line of thinking. I think that the goal-oriented, uh, the yeah, the way that we're oriented towards goals is definitely an astute observation. And I think that there is also not a lot of um, following through with the thoughts about what what end this actually achieves. And I'm. I keep thinking about the distinction um, 
between living things and non-living things and having the notion now uh, reading through Ian McGilchrist's uh, The Matter with Things, that there is something inherent to living things that they just are more uh, conducive to actually giving us something. And their goals tend to be, tend to focus on material things. And, you know, I I don't know. The, the, the older I get, the more woo I get, the more fine I am somehow with, with being woo, but... I, I imagine like material things, they, they do not resonate. They do not resonate with you in the same way. And I think that human interaction and surrounding yourself, making sure that it's an environment, a nourishing environment is more important than possessing things, saying that it is mine, right? Again, in isolation from an environment, if you talk about any kind of organism, it's pretty clear to you that they are being nourished by their environment. For us in Western society, that whole notion is almost gone. It's like, no, you should be self-sufficient in some, in some abstract way, but what does it mean and why do we think we, we can be that? And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very, interesting kind of line of thinking to, to follow through. So I, I, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. I think there's a big difference between being self-sufficient and, and being alone, you know, or being mm-hmm. isolated. And, and I, mm. and I use that word isolated, you know, I, I, I've mentioned cancer several times. I, I think that's one thing that, that a chronic or a terminal illness does. It tends to isolate you first from your friends and then from your family, and then in, in, in a lot of ways from yourself, you know, the, the real self, the real person you are. And so, you know, and, and that isolation I've found is not good. I mean, I, I love hugs. I mean, you know, if I met you, I'd give you a hug, you know, and, and, and again, this, it's not a creepy kind of thing. It's just that, that connection that, you know, hey, you know, it's great seeing you, you know, we're, we're connected on some level. And, I, I've just, I've always felt that, you know, I, I talked about what I learned from team sports, you know, being part of something that's bigger than yourself, you know, that, that you were, you were collectively together working toward a goal, you know, whether, and, and I talk about sports because that's my experience. I think whatever team you're on, whether it's, you know, your, the colleagues that you work with, your family, uh, you know, people in your, in your community, people in your, your church or synagogue, if you, if you believe in that, whatever it is, that, that connection, that we're together and together we are better than we are singularly, you know, than we are as an individual. We can do more. We can, I, I, you know, it, it, it's funny when I, when I found out I had, these tumors in my lungs and I had my leg amputated, I, I went to my doctor. My doctor's like, I want to put you on chemotherapy. And I was like, is it going to save my life? He's like, eh, probably not, but it might buy you some more time. Now I was eight years into this cancer fight. And I, I remember looking at him and saying, I'm not sure I want to do that. If the outcome is going to be the same, I'm not sure I want to go through all that ugliness. I said, but I'll go home and I'll talk to my family. So I go home and it's, like I said, it's just my wife and daughter and I, and I start telling them what my doctor wants to do. And my daughter's like, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. It's not like we got a board here or something like that, you know? And so, so we end up sitting around the kitchen table individually talking about how we feel about me having chemotherapy. And then when we're done with that, my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute. Am I getting outvoted for something that I don't want to do with my own body? But I remembered back when I was in the police academy, when I was learning to be a policeman, our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people that we love the most to class. And as we were learning different techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love then you will fight for yourself. Mm. And so I ended up taking chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, but because I love my wife and daughter more than I love myself. And in hindsight, it was, it was the right thing to do. It was a bridge to get me to the drug that I'm on now. 
Whereas if I had not done that, I'd certainly be dead by now. So, you know, it, it's just, it's that, you know, it's fighting for something that's bigger than yourself. It's realizing that your life is more, but it's not really so much about you as it is, again, emptying yourself out. What can I give? How can I make a difference in your life? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that story. I'm, I'm very happy they outvoted you. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think, I think there's probably nothing worse for a person than, than to be of no use to, to anyone, you know? Um, I want to touch on the idea of, of team sports and sports in general. I just had this thought today about the whole concept of prize, basically the, uh, the introduction to this is that I was listening to to a podcast and the host just starts the thing was like, oh, here we have this guest and she's a very, she's the winner of some prestigious awards from all these places. Um, and she's a researcher. She's an academic. Uh, and I was thinking to myself that at some point prizes are, are, are kind of strange because do you really want to win prizes for just doing what you were going to do anyway? And I felt that originally prizes must have been given as in, in spontaneous manner as a token of gratitude and recognition, but not because they were something to be aimed at, you know? It, it was probably somebody who's been doing well, uh, or doing good unto others. And these others eventually, you know, for whatever reason, did not find another way to recognize, or they thought it would be nice to give this uh, person an, an award or a token or any kind of that. And this is also interesting that through time, this became something to compete for. So now the prize is already there. And I'm actually incentivized to fight other people for it, for the prize. And in, in doing so, kind of also divorcing whatever it is that's going to get me uh, to the prize from actually living well, which for me, at least, by definition, includes doing good unto others. Like I want to align my wellness with your wellness, right? So that there is no competition and I don't need a prize either. The prize is that I have a good life, right? Is that I'm living well. And it's, it's very interesting about, uh, about seeing that this is not a new thing. This is not in, in recent decades. We already see it in, in ancient Greece. You already have a prize that people compete for, but it's interesting to, to look at these things and kind of notice the, the quirks around certain behaviors that we have as a society around certain institutions and realize this could be flipped on its head as well, right? Like this is not what prizes probably were um, originally in small communities. I would agree with you. And, and I, and, and I think you're right. There, there's a tendency and, and I've certainly seen this in healthcare, but I've also seen it with people who, you know, you talk about prizes, whatever, whatever those are, you know, whether they're trophies, whether it's money, whether, and people, you know, people will say, okay, you know, that person has a nicer car than I have, or they, that person that makes more money than I am. And we, we compare, we compare ourselves to another person. And that always drives me crazy because I mean, why can't we, instead of being jealous that that person has had more success, however you define that, financial success, worldly success, whatever, that that person, why can't we be happy for them? Why can't we just be, that's great. You are on your journey. I am on my journey. And for me to compare myself to your, to you, to your journey, to, to the prizes that you have won is doing a disservice to both of us. Because my, my path is not your path, and your path is not my path. And when we start comparing and saying, oh, I should have that, or I want that, or now all of a sudden, wait a minute, now you're, now you're out of your lane. You know, you're, you're mm -hmm. in somebody else's lane now. And, gee, is it any wonder that you're not happy? 
because you're 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 living, you're walking, you're moving in somebody else's lane. You're not moving in the lane that you were designed to. So I, I and I used to always tell my players, and, and I coached high school basketball. So you know, I coached a team sport. I used to always tell my players that you're really every day in competition with only one person, and that person is yourself. And when you get up in the morning, you need to say that, you know what, I'm going to do the very best I can today with the gifts and talents that I've been given, understanding that my journey is my journey and your journey is your journey. But when you go to bed at night, do you look in the mirror and say, I'm better today than I was yesterday? You know, and, and I, if you want to apply this to say business, you know, people always, you know, I want to get better. I want to be a better salesman or a salesperson. I want to be better at sales. And you're like, that's a huge, huge concept. It's kind of like the old joke. How do you eat the elephant? One bite at a time. <laughs> what if instead of, I want to get better at sales, what if you got 1% better at sales every day? Then at the end of a month, you're 30% better at sales. At the end of a quarter, you're almost 100% better than when you started. Now, that's a lot more manageable for people than just to say, I want to get better at sales. Because, again, it's, it's how do you eat this huge elephant? How do you take on this huge goal? You have to break it down into bite-sized chunks that, that we can deal with because that, that's just too big of a goal. You have to break it down. And, again, who are you competing with? You know, oh, I, I got to be the top salesman. For what? Can you not be right. the best salesman that you could possibly be? And if you can say that at the end of your life, I'll give you the best definition I ever heard of success. And it's this. Success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing that you did the best to become the best that you're capable of becoming. Now, nowhere in that definition does it say anything about winning. Does it say anything about getting prizes? Does it say anything about that? And that definition was from one of the most successful basketball coaches here in the United States who, you know, won a ton of games but never mm. said anything about the importance of winning because it was never about winning. It was about competing. It was about trying to be better today than you were yesterday. Right. And and it's it's actually the moments you're going to cherish are the moments where you're completely lost in the activity. It's not even winning the prize. I think that uh, going back to how you started this uh, conversation, we can actually see there are plenty of examples of people who have won it all and still that that has not stopped them from wanting to kill themselves at times. Um, so... Yeah, being being in the process and also going back to orienting yourself toward goals, I think that again it's it's more conducive to well being to actually make sure that you create around you the kind of environment that makes it very unlike unlikely for you to actually have a a really terrible day or something like that. Because if you've invested in um forming and maintaining relationship with people of course you're going to have your off days when it comes to when it comes to mood and and so on but you're going to spring right back if you have a strong a strong uh, community around you and it's yeah at times you know in in conversations like that even that even this conversation you know i've been busy for almost three years now just connecting with people on and off record on the internet and on the face of it it's a very it's a very useless in the sense that i don't make any money or anything like that um but just recognizing and being able to look back and look forward to many more it's just so obvious that this is creating around me the kind of environment that i want to live in and which actually helps me um live well and it's quite bizarre that this is not common knowledge i think about it a lot is uh is this something that necessarily got lost does it may maybe it has to be discovered every generation i'm not sure i'm not sure what the nature of the problem is really <laughs> yeah it's, it's kind of like the old saying you know you can't change the world but you can change your little piece of it 
Mm. You know, and, and, and are you making a difference? Am I making a difference? Are, are you know, if, if people individually try to make a difference, imagine collectively what those people coming together can possibly do. And, you know, I, I, I remember the old quote by Nelson Mandela, you know, the former president of South Africa, who said, you know, I never lose. I either win or I learn. And as long mm. as you're learning, as long as you're a lifelong learner, as long as you want to improve yourself, you know, again, going back to what we were just talking about, can you look yourself in the mirror before you go to bed every night and say, you know what, I'm a better person today than I was yesterday. And if you can do that, and if that, whatever that means to you, you know, what better at what, you know, what, whatever you, however you define your purpose in life, whatever you feel God put you on this earth to do with your unique gifts and talents and stay in your lane and be happy for other people. This is an amazing life. It's an amazing world. And I'm, I'm 62 years into it. I hope I have another 62 years, but the bottom line is like you, I've been a guest on 600 podcasts around the world. I have met so many amazing, interesting, funny, you know, smart people that have made my life better that I, I can't wait to do podcasts. I don't care how bad I'm feeling from my cancer treatments or whatever. I can't wait to interact with new people like you. You know, it's like, what did I learn from you today? You know, did I give you something of myself? Did I, did I make you better? Did you make me better? If we did, today's been a good day. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that. And, um, yeah, I, I do, I do think that we should aim to be in, in a good place. I still, I have to say, honestly, I'm still thinking a lot about, you know, being better or becoming better. I think in that regard too, it, it we would do well to actually remember that maybe we're in a place and we want to be in a, in a good place because that implies that there is a relationship between us and something and, and something that is around us. And hopefully it is family, friends and faith all at the same time, um, along, along with some other things. So I would say, um, yeah, maybe to, to be in a good place every day. That's all we should, you know, and being in a good place really, really says nothing about what you have materially or anything like that. It's a, it's a, it's a completely abstract place. Yeah, it, it is. I, I mean, you think about the end, you know, again, thinking about the end game of our lives, which we don't like to do, death scares us, but, you know, things that we have, you know, the, how much money we make, you know, the car we drive off, none of that goes with us when when we go. And And I have a faith life, and what I believe does go with us is the love that we have in our hearts, the love that we share with other people. I think that that is something you can't quantify it. It's not tangible. You can't see it, but it's there. And, you know, and making that commitment to connecting with other people, to, to giving of yourself, to pouring yourself out. I think at the end of my life, you know, obviously I believe my God will be the judge of that, but did I, did I do what you wanted me to do? Is this going to be, you know, well done, good and faithful servant? I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. I was, uh, I had the privilege two weeks ago to, um, be by my grandmother as she passed away at age 100 and be by the wow. bedside as, um, yeah, with my whole family. And it was an amazing experience. And I'm, I'm very thankful that it brought back my thinking about death. I've, I'm always thinking about death because uh, because uh, my mom actually died when I was 10 at a car crash. So it's always been in my mind, like at that point, of course, too early, too much and everything. But now going through the experience of seeing it happening in a very, very graceful, like the best way possible. And it's, it's led me to think that, you know, basically every day that we're alive and we're not thinking about death, is probably a day on which we're going to be useless and aiming for the wrong thing. So I'm a big believer that, um, that this is something that we shouldn't uh, shy, shy away from. And, um, yeah, just, just do ha have it, have it take us to, to good places and, and rather than, you know, be completely freaked out about it. Exactly. Yeah, Terry, thank you so much, and and thank you for very naturally coming into this into this um, beautiful conclusion. I I really appreciate your uh, openness and willingness to share 
and um, definitely happy that we had this um, exchange, which we both agree is is good for us. Um, Absolutely. Thank, thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. I, I'd love for you to share with listeners anything that you want in um, when it comes to places where they can find more about you or what you do, anything like that. Sure. I, I have a blog. Uh, it's called Motivational Check. Uh, every day I put up a thought for the day and with that thought usually comes a, a question about maybe how you could apply that thought into your life. Um, I also have recommendations for books to read, videos to watch, uh, things like that. Uh, I also have a book that I uh, had published in late 2020 called Sustainable Excellence, The Ten Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. You can get that book wherever you get your books online or you can go to motivationalcheck.com and you can order it through Amazon there as well. Awesome. Yeah, I'll link to all those. Um, thanks once again. Well, thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed this. I could talk to you for hours. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. 